you want to grab a Bible and open up to 1 John, if you're using the uh, Pew Bible in front of you, we're in 1 John 1. I need a page number. I forgot to write it down when I came up here. Let me know when somebody gets there. P- page number in the Pew Bible? 1021. 1021. Near the very end of the Bible. All right. You know, this is a, this is a passage that I've been looking forward to, uh, preaching, and yet at the same time, um, as I've spent time in it all week, more I feel like it's, it's gonna, I don't know, maybe it won't feel this way to you, but to me it feels like it's gonna come across different than, uh, than a typical sermon. Um, because I just feel like this one preaches itself, and I, I just, I just need to get up and just, just talk a little bit about what, what's so clearly here and encourage us. This is one of the most amazing, Three verses of scripture uh, in our Bible, because at the heart of it, in the middle of this passage, is is the heart of the gospel, and it's good news to us. And if we understand what's being said in these three verses, verses eight through ten, which we're looking at today, uh, then we get we get Christianity, we get the we get the gospel, we understand the core message, and if if not just understanding it, but but learning to to live in light of this. Uh, is all you need to know, okay? So I'm excited about it. I'm excited to, to proclaim it this morning, and and uh, I want to ask God to just fill us with Himself as we ex- expose ourselves to these three sentences. Father, thank you for Your Word. Thank you that You love us. And Lord, the, the verses that we're looking at today are are proof positive of that. God, You love us. You love us with a love that, that is far beyond anything we could deserve. And yet, Lord, You've given to us freely through Your Son cleansing and forgiveness of our sin. So help us this morning to just to understand, just to, to see our sin rightly. Help us to agree with You about what sin is. And, and then help us, Lord, to be filled with the hope that You've done something about our sin. And that you continually do something about our sin because of the, the ongoing permanent effects of the cross and resurrection of your son. Just fill us with that hope this morning. And Lord, I want to pray specifically for those who are here who, who may not yet know you, that today would be the day when they, they go, I get it. The light would go on, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would repent and believe and find you to be a good father to them, a savior to them, their only hope. Work in us towards that end today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. First John. We started this a couple weeks ago, and I want to just remind you of the, the purpose of the letter. Uh, John is uh, is writing into uh, a lot of different churches in what is today modern day Turkey at the time it was you know the churches of Asia Minor many of the churches that you see in your New Testament when you look at books like Colossians or Ephesians or Philippians these are the churches in the areas that he's writing into and again this is this is uh, about 60 years or so after Jesus's resurrection John is the only living uh, apostle at this time, all the others have died. They've been martyred for the most part. And, um, and, and, a, and a heresy is beginning to spring up in the church, uh, a heresy called Gnosticism. 
And I won't get into the details of that again. We covered that over the last couple of weeks. But the bottom line is they were, they were messing up the core message of Christianity. And so John is writing in to address that problem and to remind them what the gospel really is. Uh, and so the purpose of the letter, we actually find it near the end of it in chapter 5, verse 13. And he says this, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So again, he's saying, look, if, 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 you, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, here's the test. As you understand what I'm saying to you, if, if, if your life and your belief aligns with what I'm saying to you, you can have some assurance that you are indeed in Christ, that you do have life in Him, that you're, you're really a Christian. And so far, what John has done is, is he addressed this purpose in the beginning of chapter 1 in two ways. And again, both of them relating to our having assurance that we really know Jesus, that we really understand the gospel, that we're followers of Christ. And the, the first was this. He started off by saying, look, the most important thing to start with is that you believe the true gospel. Not this false teaching that's been dominating the church lately, but that you believe the, the true gospel, and that true gospel is the apostolic testimony. It's, it's what we who actually knew Jesus, who lived with Him, who walked with Him, who witnessed His teaching and His miracles, who saw His death and His resurrection, what we proclaim to you, because Jesus entrusted it to us, you will be my witnesses. And so we have proclaimed this faithfully to you. It's, it's what's in the scriptures. It's what's in the apostolic writings. If, if you know what's rooted in Jesus, that's the starting point. You gotta believe what we've shared with you, not some fancy false teaching that's coming out of, you know, modern, uh, hip trends, right? That was the first thing. And then the second thing, which Pastor Jorge led us in last week, was the first test of assurance that you, that you really believe the true gospel, that you are in Christ, is that you would live in the light and not in the darkness. Because in God is light in Him, there is no darkness at all. And when, when He transforms our life, He changes us. We don't live like we used to live anymore. We're different people. And, and the fruit of that is we begin to look more like Him. We don't walk in sin anymore. We walk in grace and truth. And so it's incongruous for a Christian to live like the world. That's a test of assurance. Are you different? Are you, are you walking in the light? And then today, we see John's next test of assurance. And it's this, it's, it's how do you then view your sin? Because for him to say to walk in the light and no longer in the darkness, if we were to take that to its nth degree, we might say, well, then we should be aiming for sinless perfectionism. And that's not the point. That's not true. We know we'll never reach full sinless perfectionism this side of heaven, all right? But John wants us to understand that, the, but you will view your sin differently. You ought to sin less and you ought to view it differently. The presence of sin in your life, if you're a proclaiming Christian, does not necessarily mean you are or aren't a true Christian. We are, are, we are all going to have some sin in our life, but the attitude that you have towards your sin the attitude that you have towards it will reveal much about where you're really at. If you really are in the truth, if God has begun to change you. So let me read again verses 5 through 10, just to kind of get more of the context. This is last week's passage as well as this week. And let's see what John is saying here. He says, This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. 
and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. I want you to notice that there was three mentions of a similar phrase uh, throughout those verses, and it's basically this. He starts off his sentences with, if you say, and then he follows it up, if you say that you don't have sin, if you say that you have not sinned, if you say that you walk in fellowship with God, but you actually live in the darkness. He's, he's making a point here to say, look, what we say means very little if it's not actually backed up with how we actually are. You can say just about anything, but it means nothing apart from real fruit. Again, if you're really in Christ, there's going to be actual life change. He will bring that about in you. All right? And so he wants us to, again, understand what that looks like. So here's the main idea that I want us to, to hone in on with verses 8-10. through 10. It's this. It's that a true Christian will be sensitive to sin. And that sensitivity will lead him or her to a humble confession and repentance with full confidence in the Gospel. I'm going to repeat that because I know that was kind of a long sentence. Here's the main idea. A true Christian will be sensitive to sin. And that sensitivity will lead him or her to a humble confession and repentance with full confidence in the Gospel. Verses 8-10, through I believe, show three kinds of people. Three different kinds of people. The first kind of person is those who would deny sin altogether. They don't believe in a sin nature. The second kind of person is one who would say, well, okay, I, I don't deny sin exists. I do think sin exists. I just don't think I happen to be one of those sinners. And then the third kind of person is the kind of person that John is trying to get us to identify with in Christ is the person who says, no, I, I recognize that there is sin and I know it's me and I humbly confess and repent and seek after the forgiveness of God. Three kinds of people. So let's look at these three kinds of people together. Again, verse 8 is the first one. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, I think what's being made here is a claim about our nature. Notice that it doesn't say, if we say we, uh, it, it, it doesn't say sins plural, but it says we say we have no sin singular. Uh, I think what, what John is getting at here is to say not just that I don't commit various acts of sin, but that sin itself isn't a reality. It's, it's, it's a claim that says my nature is not a sin nature, which sounds like the attitude of an atheist, right? If I don't believe in a God, if I don't believe in a, 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 an authoritative morality, then I can say with confidence that there is no such thing as sin. 
And that's true. An atheist would probably fit into this category. Say there is no such thing as a sin nature. But it's not necessarily just an atheist's attitude. It can also be highly spiritualized. And in fact, I, I think it's quite in line with the spirituality of the age that John was writing into and in line with the spirituality of our own age. If you really evaluate our culture and you, and you just try to get it as best you can, put your thumb on what's, what's the core value of 21st century Western civilization? I think a good answer to that question might be this. It's we place the highest value on our individual freedom. And I, and I say that because I'm, I'm just observing what's going on around me. And, and you see all of the chaos, all of the arguments, all of the tension in the world around us right now. And if you're on you know, Twitter or Facebook, you should be seeing this very clearly. It's people who are arguing about and fighting about and defending ultimately their individual right to do what they want to do without somebody else infringing upon their freedom. Is that fair? I think that's probably the, the, the key idol of our culture right now. Individual freedom. And, and so if individual freedom, my own right to, to be the captain of my own ship, is the, the high value of the day, then what does that breed? Well, it ultimately breeds what we call moral relativism. Moral relativism is the belief that there are no absolutes and that you get to decide for yourself. Each person decides what is right and what is wrong. We sometimes call this postmodern thought. Postmodernism, I don't want to oversimplify it, but just to put a definition on it, uh, is basically this. It, it is, it's a rejection of any notion of a universal overarching truth and it, it just reduces then all ideas to social constructions that are shaped by class or gender or ethnicity. We're, we're going to all see the world differently. My truth is not the same as your truth. Our cultural truth is different than other cultural truths. But there's nothing overarching that is uh, universal to all of it. I was, I was reading uh, a lot of different things this week, uh, just trying to understand more of that, that mindset. And I came across something that, that really fascinated me. Um, it was actually a 2004 interview in the Chicago Sun-Times. Uh, their columnist Kathleen Falsani in, actually interviewed at that time Barack Obama, who had, he was a senator. All right. So he, she's, she's doing this interview with, with Barack Obama, and, and she's talking to him about his, his faith. Uh, and he, he said a quote that I thought, man, that, that actually, I think that really highlights kind of the dominant spirituality of the day, and it was this. She asked him, do you believe in sin? And he said, well, yeah. So she clarified, well, what is sin? And his answer was, being out of alignment with my own values. I think most people would answer that way. If there's something that is sinful, if there's something that's inherently wrong, there's a wrong view of life, a wrong approach to living, it's to do something that's out of alignment with my own values. Not with some transcendent value above me or anybody else's value, but, but mine. Now listen, that I think is exactly what John's talking about here when he says that's self-deceit. If, if you think that there is no such thing as overarching morality over you, you're deceiving yourself. 
Why? Because it's a philosophy that breaks down under scrutiny. You try to play that, that kind of thinking out. Moral relativism, you know, my truth is only for me, your truth is for you. You try to, to play that out, and, and ultimately it, it breaks down for several reasons. First of all, if my highest value is individual freedom, I can do whatever I want to do, then I, I'm going to run into conflicting freedoms in my life, aren't I? So for example, and this is an example I read in a, in a book recently. Uh, I can't, can't walk away from this, can I? I read in a book recently uh, from Tim Keller, and he was saying, look, if, 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 I, if I have two high values, one is that I want to be able to eat my favorite foods and eat anything that I want, and two is that I want to be able to spend as much time with my grandchildren as I can, if the foods that I really want to eat are foods that are going to put my health in jeopardy, and allow me not to live long enough to spend time with my grandchildren, then I've got two conflicting values. I've got two freedoms that culturally I should be able to fulfill. I should be able to run after the things that I want to pursue and create my own values, but they actually conflict with each other. And that's going to happen in, in all kinds of ways in life. It's going to break down. The other thing is that we, we might be able to say, well, listen, so let's, let's at least recognize that uh, you can choose your own truths, you can make your own realities, but, but we do have to recognize that we can't infringe upon other people's rights and, respond, and their, their freedoms. I can be free to do what I want as long as I don't harm somebody. But that breaks down too, because again, as we talked about two weeks ago, we can't agree on what is and isn't harmful to each other. We're going to have different values about that. We're going to have different opinions about that. And it also breaks down here. It's ultimately hypocritical. Because if we're saying that the highest value is individual freedom, uh, then, then we have to then buck against any kind of intolerance or bigotry that we think infringes upon individual freedoms. And therefore, we've now just labeled something as sinful. Intolerance. So we've become hypocrites. There are no absolutes except this one. So Tim Keller points this out. He says, even in our supposed relativistic culture, value judgments are made constantly. Which is true. Just look at your Facebook feed. Right? People should have the freedom to do whatever they want. Just don't disagree with them. Value judgments are made constantly. People and groups are daily lifted up in order to shame them. Public moral offense is taken as much as ever. It's, it's hypocritical to claim today that we grant people so much more freedom when we're actually fighting to press our moral beliefs about harm on everyone. So if true freedom of choice can't stand alone as a guide to behavior, and it can't, it, it, it collapses under itself, we need some kind of moral norms and constraints on our actions if we're going to live together in a functional society, right? Now, without belaboring the point, can I just cut to the chase and, and say, anytime you appeal then to a credible or valid morality, it has to derive its credibility from some kind of authority. It has to. And that is a line that will lead you very quickly to God. What else could be a transcendent moral authority but a transcendent moral authority? 
it's going to lead us to God. Otherwise, our morality can only gain its authority from our own cultural perspectives. And that's ethnocentrism. And if we become ethnocentrists, we just violated our own moral code because we can't accept ethnocentricity. You see the problem? It's kind of confusing, but it just breaks down. It leads to a God. There is a God. There is a standard. There is something that is transcendent. There's a truth. And if there is a God with a moral standard, we have to measure ourselves by that standard. That's what John's saying here. If you say there is no standard, if you say there is no sin, you're deceiving yourselves. We have to measure ourselves by that standard. And when we don't meet that standard, we are in sin. And it's only through an incredible self-deceit that you can believe for a second that you're without sin. The truth is not in you. That's the point of verse 8. So the first kind of person says there's no such thing as sin, and John's simple answer is you're kidding yourself. The second kind of person is the person who would acknowledge that sin exists, but say, but I haven't sinned. Look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So again, this person again says, look, there's sin, and there are sinners. I'm just not really one of them. I don't personally have anything to confess. We, we all heard something this year uh, that got a lot of press coverage. I, I mentioned the, the Barack Obama article. If, I wasn't trying to be political by mentioning his name. I'll balance it out. Um, this year, <laughs> this year there, was a, there was a lot of hubbub about Donald Trump's answer to the question about forgiveness. You remember that? He was, he was interviewed, and, and the interviewer asked him, um, you know, are, do you ever ask for forgiveness? And this was his answer. He said, I, I like to be good. I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. And I am good. I don't do a lot of things that are bad. I try not to do nothing that is bad. I'm not sure I have. When asked if he'd ever asked God for forgiveness, he says, I'm not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I, I don't think so, he said. If I do something wrong, I'll just try to make it right. I don't bring God into the picture. All right, that, that's, I think, a good encapsulation of this attitude. Right? I'm not saying that there's no such thing as sin. I just don't think I'm one of them. I'm not saying some people shouldn't ask for forgiveness, but I don't think I need to be one of those people. I, 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 don't, I don't think I've done anything to have to ask for forgiveness. Um, li- listen, this is, this is self-righteousness, and it's a self-righteousness through comparison. Right? I'm going to measure myself by this standard. Yeah, there's sin, and some of you are in that boat, and as long as I'm better than you, I'm okay. This is, this is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, right? You got the, the, the Pharisee who's the religious leader. This is the guy who should be the, the, the righteous one in the community who stands to pray next to the tax collector who is the most despised sinner in town. And the prayer of the religious man, the Pharisee, is this, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this guy. And Jesus says, that man left unjustified. He measured himself against the wrong standard. 
What's the problem with comparison? Well, here's the standard. Here's the actual standard, according to Jesus. Matthew 5, 17-20. He says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says a few verses later, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. And if that's the standard, then we all know that doesn't bode very well for mankind if we're honest with ourselves. And we can see that God has already pronounced His judgment upon our hearts in Scripture. Romans 3, verses 10-12, through 12, as it is written, none is righteous. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Everyone is turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. When you look at verse 8 and you look at verse 10, and again, I, I, I said this before, but you notice that, that sin is singular there. It's not plural. He's not talking about behaviors that are done. He's talking about the core nature of us. If you say you don't have sin, singular, big S, this is your nature, you're lying to yourself. And, and here's the point that he's getting at here. Listen, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. You're not defined by your behaviors that make you somehow tainted. You're tainted and that therefore makes your behaviors sinful. We want to compare ourselves. We want to feel good about ourselves. And, 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 and we're terrible at evaluating ourselves. Well, sure, I, I admit I'm, I'm not perfect, but I mean, come on, if I'm going to give myself a grade, I, I can't imagine myself. I'm at least going to get like a C plus, right? I mean, probably a B. Some days I'm an A. Who, who, who ever gives themselves an F? We don't, right? Why? Because there's always somebody worse than us in our own estimation. And John again is saying, look, to deny that you're a sinner and that you've sinned is not just to be self-deceived, it's foolishness. But here it's also to call God a liar. Because the Word of God has declared it. I just read to you some of the key passages. No one is righteous. Not even one. And therefore, if you say, I'm not a sinner, or I have not sinned, the truth is not in you, the Word is not in you, you don't understand. 
you certainly aren't a follower of Jesus. You know, these two attitudes towards sin are, are born out of different worldviews, right? One of them may be born out of this, this uh, starting point that there is no such thing as sin. The other one born out of a starting point, well, there is sin, I'm just not a sinner. They're, they're, they're a little different, but they're two sides of the same coin. They're, they're very much the same, because what's happening here is that both are basically claiming this. I'm the captain of my own ship. Well, I either get to determine what's true and good for me, or I get to make myself feel better by, by performing better than other people. But either way, I'm the, I'm the captain of my own ship. They both rely on my own performance in order to feel righteous, in order to feel justified. And when they rely on your performance, if you rely on your performance, it is a precarious place to be. Because in your heart of hearts, you know that your performance isn't. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's a precarious place to be. I wonder if you're living that way right now. I wonder if if that's kind of been the, the way you've been evaluating your life. You know, well, I'm I'm doing better than most people. I don't, I don't have a whole lot of big issues going on in my life right now. I'm, I'm, I think I'm performing pretty well. Are you satisfied? Do you feel secure? What happens when you screw up? Then what? Then where's your security? So John says, look, you want to have assurance that you have life in Christ? You want to know what it really means to follow Christ? Yeah, if you say you have no sin, you're, you're fooling yourself. If you say you have not sinned, you're, you're making God into a liar. But, but, but listen, here's what you need to know. Here's, here's where assurance really comes from. Here's the core message of Christianity, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John's saying, you know what? Jesus' gospel offers a truer, better, safer, more compelling way. And the person who gets verse 9 is the person who humbly recognizes, you know what? Yeah, I know I'm a sinner. And and I'm going to confess that before the Lord. I will run to Him, but I can do that in confidence because of what's true about the gospel. And let's talk about what's true about the gospel here. Listen, if, if, if confessing sin scares the tar out of you, and for most people it does, here's why. It's again, it's because your security depends on your performance, and so you're at risk. If I confess, then I'm admitting my performance underperformed. I'm immediately at risk. And if God judges me based on my performance, I'm in trouble, so I don't want to confess that. I don't want to admit it. I want to hide like an ostrich sticks his head in the sand and just hope that the problems go away. Because the minute I admit it, I'm in trouble. But what if your security didn't rest on your performance? What if your security instead rested on the performance of one who is truly without sin? And that's why Jesus came. Jesus 
fully divine, as, as John has already made very clear in the beginning of this letter, this is God in the flesh. He came, made, made Himself manifest to dwell with us. He lived a life on earth that was perfect. He performed perfectly. And He died on the cross in your place to take the righteous wrath of God for your imperfection. Yeah, you know what? If you confess your sin and God is just, He has to punish it. But what if He punished it on His own perfect Son instead of on you? And transferred not only your sin to His Son, but His Son's perfection to you. And then could look at you and say, as you confess, you're covered. You're clean. You're righteous. This is what it means that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He's faithful because He promised that's what He was going to do. When Adam and Eve committed the very first sin, He made that very first promise that He was going to do something about it. That He was going to provide a substitute. That a Messiah was going to come. A sacrifice would be made that would be sufficient for all that they had done. For all that you have done and all that I have done. And God is faithful to that promise. He has met it in His Son. Jesus lived the perfect life you couldn't live and He died the death you deserved in your place and He rose again in order to defeat that death and it is finished and God says, I'm faithful. He's just. He's righteous. What if your security didn't rest on your performance but on the performance of one who truly is without sin? And not only then would He be able to forgive your sin. But it says He's also able then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin leaves a stain. Jesus cleanses it. He doesn't look at us and go, you know, I see your, I've forgiven you, but you're still sullied. You're still dirty. You're still broken. No, He sees us. He says, you're white as snow. I took it away. I threw it at the bottom of the ocean. It's gone. You are pure. You are righteous. You are just like Jesus. If, if that's the attitude that God has towards my sin, when I humbly confess that I'm a sinner in need of what Jesus alone could do for me, if God's attitude then is to say, then in my Son, I wash you clean. Then I can confess with confidence. Can't I? I can go to the throne with boldness. Anytime I, I, I find myself steeped in any kind of sin, I can always step back into the throne and say, Lord, I praise You that You do not judge me based on my performance but you've judged me based on the performance of your perfect Son who sits at your right hand right now as my advocate declaring over me that my sin has been paid for. And I can come. Every single time I can come. I, I, I don't have to fear admitting my failure because my, my judgment isn't based on my performance. 
John says that's that's the good news of the gospel. This is the assurance that you know that you have eternal life, that you have the confidence to know that Jesus' death and resurrection was for you and was sufficient for you. So come. Come in confidence and confess and find in Him the grace to forgive and cleanse you forever. That's everything you need to know to become a Christian and to live as one. Will we be without sin entirely? Not as long as we have these old, broken, fleshly bodies. But we have a daily access through a faithful mediator that says, come, come, confess, be cleansed, be cleansed, be accepted. A true Christian will be sensitive to the sin and that sensitivity will lead him or her to a humble confession and repentance with full confidence in the gospel. Let's pray. I want to ask you to just take some time, and I, I want you to, before the Lord, just pray on your own. Maybe there's sin that needs to be confessed. Maybe you've been waiting and hiding and hesitating because you've believed wrongly that God's view of you is dependent upon your performance. I want you to take some time to, to pray and confess your sin. And after you've done that, I will close and I want to just praise God for the hope and the confidence that we have in the finished work of Christ. Take some time. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we thank You for the hope that we have in Your Son. Lord, we thank You that we can come boldly to You confidently knowing that though we Sin And Lord, we don't want to ever minimize our sin or take it lightly. We know in our heart of hearts that it is an offense against You and against Your holiness. It is a betrayal of what we were made to be. It is destructive to our lives and to our world, Lord. We, we make no uh, pretenses about our sin. We make no excuses about it or, 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 or in any way try to minimize it. But Lord, we are so grateful that no matter what load we carry, no matter what we've done, that we can repent and believe in the sacrifice of Your Son. Thank You for sending Jesus. Thank You for the life that He lived. Thank You for the death that He died. Thank You for the resurrection of victory. Thank You for His current position seated next to You as our Advocate. Always declaring before You that those who have put their faith in Him are washed clean. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who've, who've never confessed their sin to You. Who've never trusted You for their salvation. I pray that today would be the day that You open their eyes to see the goodness that You offer them. The glory of salvation. The hope that is theirs in Christ. 
Grant to them this eternal life that John is writing about, that we would know that we have it. Help them to know that they have it by faith in Christ. And I pray for those of us who, Lord, have trusted You, but daily walk and stumble. When we fall, we take our eyes off of You and we, we, we fix our gaze on other things. We look to other things for our hope, our security. That, Lord, You would remind us that the work on the cross is indeed finished. And that we can always come, always come, confess our sin and know that Jesus' death covered it. Our debt is paid. Thank You, Lord. Life is ours in Christ. Hallelujah, Lord. Help us to know and to live in that reality. Help us to be people who, who are, are quick to confess and grateful to grab onto the promise that you are faithful and just to forgive. Thank you, Father, for the gospel. Help us to believe it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.